This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, February 28, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. We're a few years into the consequences of the Affordable Care Act, so what are they? Do higher rates of health insurance coverage justify the law? And what should repeal or repeal and replace actually look like? Aaron Yellowitz is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. We spoke this week in Lexington, Kentucky. The statistic that is often the lead in almost every news story about the Affordable Care Act is how many millions of people now have health insurance who did not have it before the Affordable Care Act. Can you break out what that statistic, one, what does it technically mean and what is it meant to convey? There are a couple things. First off, Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act extended health insurance in a number of ways. It gave health insurance to young adults under age 26 who uh, had parents who were working. And the interesting thing about that was that regardless of whether you were dependent or not or married or not, you could still get health insurance under your parents' plan. That happened a while ago. That happened in 2010. The more substantive changes happened in 2014. 2014, where uh, we remember the kind of rocky start to uh, the healthcare exchanges, basically entailed in about half of the states a large Medicaid expansion uh, up until 138% of the poverty line. And then for those who had incomes up to about $95,000, if you were a family of four, could get subsidized coverage from the healthcare marketplace, either a state-run one or the federal one. So basically, there was uh, a giant expansion in health insurance coverage. About half the gains more or less came from Medicaid. About half the gains came from private coverage. Um, in the states where they didn't expand Medicaid, it obviously came much more from what we would call private coverage, even though there were large taxpayer subsidy. And the number out there, 20 million gained over the last couple of years, is correct. So there's been a big drop in the number of people who don't have insurance cards. Okay. So in terms of what that is meant to convey, clearly the idea is on net, uh, Americans are better off for this situation, but are they? Interesting question. So some people will, of course, count success as if before we had 50 million uninsured and now we have 30 million uninsured, that in and of itself proves that this was a success. Most economists probably wouldn't agree with that. And there are sort of two metrics that they tend to use in order to try and define success. One of them is, first off, that health insurance is, in a sense, a financial product. It is, ins- it is paying the financial consequences of adverse health events. So if you go to the hospital and suffer a $100,000 bill, then basically you would uh, uh, not have to pay $100,000, but your out-of-pocket maximum, which would be about 6300 or so. So along that first margin, did health insurance reduce those catastrophic costs among the segment that incur them? Evidence seems to say yes. But then there's a larger question, the one that typically motivates a single payer, motivates giant expansions in coverage, which is if you look at the health in the U.S. compared to some of these other countries that have universal coverage, looks like things are worse. The sort of thing you're supposed to take away from that is if we all had health insurance, we'd all be in better health. That is really the crux of the argument on whether healthcare reform is a success or not, in my view. In the evidence, there is far more mixed. 
With that said, we're two years in, so people who would uh, be supportive of the law perhaps might say two years isn't enough to see giant improvements in health. But there is a large literature, both with the Affordable Care Act um, and with other really first-class studies that basically show that the gains in physical health and mental health uh, objective measures tend not to be there, even though we extend health insurance. At this point, as we see the implementation continuing to sort of still unfold with respect to the Affordable Care Act, what is the best thing that we can say for what that legislation actually achieved that is a clear uh, benefit? A benefit that I think economists of all stripes might agree on is that there were catastrophic medical expenses out there that basically you might get dismissed through bankruptcy or something like that. And to, and there are number of studies that seem to show that that has greatly been mitigated. So let's call that a success. Natural question is, must we overhaul the system and must we overhaul it in the way that we have in order to achieve that sort of success? Basically, for preventing those sort of catastrophic financial failures, you'd want what we would call kind of a high deductible plan. And clearly what we see under the Affordable Care Act is not bare bones coverage, but much richer coverage than that. For example, we cover flu shots, we cover uh, birth control for free. Uh, we cover all of these sorts of services that largely one could pay for out of one's own pocket, for example, and are not catastrophic in any sense of the word. Right. Birth control is cheap. Uh, the One of the free market solutions to providing birth control uh, more cheaply was to just make it over the counter, which is not not something a lot of people who were defenders of the Affordable Care Act would, would uh, back. Uh, from my recollection, there's only one state that I believe it's Oregon that allows purchasing of the pill over the counter. The way you have to purchase reliable birth control right now is by basically going to a doctor, having that doctor write a prescription, continuing to write a prescription for you, and uh, that in turn basically gets you birth control. If you need a doctor in order to give you permission to get birth control, then you're going to need health insurance as well. However, if we thought much like if I want to buy some uh, over-the-counter medication for heartburn, which I can do nowadays, but we couldn't always do, then basically I can do that without a doctor's prescription, don't need to talk to a doctor at all. So a lot of the things that people are touting as benefits of the Affordable Care Act, if you think directly about them, we can potentially achieve those benefits with far less invasive sorts of interventions. For birth control, make it over the counter. Oregon does it, the other 49 states should do that as well. For flu shots, the flu shot before uh, it was a price of zero, which it is now, was actually eminently affordable if you went to any drugstore. The reason why perhaps a third of people get flu shots any season is likely not because of the cost, but rather other things like they're phobic of needles, they don't believe that it's much going to help them, that, that, that sort of thing. But those largely don't have anything to do with health insurance. We're speaking here in Kentucky right now where since the Affordable Care Act was uh, rolled out, Medicaid, those covered by Medicaid uh, in the Commonwealth, has gone from about 20% of the population of Kentucky, which was a huge number, to about 30%. And what does that do to uh, the provision of insurance outside of Medicaid? A couple things. So first off, uh, 
in work that I've done with several collaborators from Georgia State University, we document that Kentucky had the largest gain in health insurance coverage of all of the states. It's remarkable, in part because Kentucky was initially a very poor state, so it had low coverage and was one of the handful of states in the South, which tend to be pretty poor states, that also expanded Medicaid coverage. Um, in work that I've done for the Schnatter Institute here at University of Kentucky, I've actually done some tabs of the astounding growth in the number of people who have signed up for Medicaid. At least a fair portion of them look like they actually shouldn't be on Medicaid, but rather on the private portion. But what does it do? What it tends to do is take relatively poor people who might also be somewhat younger um, and somewhat healthier and takes them out of the risk pool for the private coverage, which in general will leave a less healthy mix of people who are purchasing private coverage, which will tend to increase premiums. And one of the things that I think we've seen from that uh, is insurance companies pulling out and uh, at least claims of a death spiral. Basically, premiums seem to be going out up, companies seem to be leaving, and whether this will continue in the foreseeable future then is of grave concern where people are kind of gaming the system and only buying insurance when they're sick, not when they're healthy. And states like Kentucky, I believe there were maybe 10 or so states, have experimented with some of the similar policies that were rolled out in the Affordable Care Act, that is guaranteed issue uh, and community rating. So Kentucky, in a sense, has tried to uh, dismantle its private health insurance market now on two occasions. So there are a number of states who have tried this. Uh, New York is the most prominent one. Uh, and I actually wrote a paper about comparing New York premiums and California premiums for Cato about six years ago. And uh, the one difference which every proponent of the Affordable Care Act would say is that states did not have the ability to mandate people to purchase health insurance coverage. Uh, and. The thing about the individual mandate, which, uh, um, well, first off, what we see is there are still we're, we're not at 100% insurance coverage. Uh, people are finding ways of evading the individual mandate. More important than that, the individual mandate simply says you have to buy bronze coverage. And the gaming of the system could come along where in years, perhaps when you anticipate having a child or when you might anticipate having high medical expenses if you happen to get a bad diagnosis this year, what will you do next year? You'll go from your bronze plan to a platinum or gold plan. And basically, that doesn't solve those sorts of problems which lead to the death spiral. So the idea that the individual mandate alone, getting people to buy bronze plans, is enough to solve the kinds of problems that plague states like Kentucky, um, I think what we're seeing is that that's not the case. What should reform look like? There is a lot of talk, of course, in Congress and by President Trump about uh, repealing and replacing, as there has been for many, many years by Republicans in Congress. But uh, there are a lot of elements of the Affordable Care Act that people like that were untouchable even after the Affordable Care Act was uh, passed, like cuts to Medicare, which were going to help pay for some of the uh, benefits provided by the Affordable Care Act. So what should reform look like? What should it be focused on? So a couple thoughts on that. So I wonder whether the Affordable Care Act, which is really, let's call it three years in now, not seven years in, because the major reforms happened in 2014. Is it really a third rail the way that Social Security is 
or Medicare is, which then becomes impossible to reform. Um, now, my gut sense is, remember, only a few years ago, we didn't have the ACA. And then the natural question, I think, in terms of politics, and of course, I'm not a political scientist or anything like that, is imagine you rip the Band-Aid off and you just sort of repealed, no replace. What would happen? Well, natural question is, uh, or what the poster child that would be put up is, there are clearly some people who were sick, who were big winners in gain coverage. But then there are also a heck of a lot of people who, in a sense, gain highly subsidized coverage, but they weren't terribly sick to begin with. They were mostly not buying insurance because they just didn't want to. Um, the studies I've done with my collaborators at Georgia State say the biggest people who gain coverage tend to be relatively young, low income, but not necessarily poor health or anything like that. They tended to get massive subsidies. They'd be a bit annoyed about losing their free health insurance, or at least what they perceive to be free health insurance. But um, the real losers from doing this would be the people who really did have those pre-existing conditions. Um, where you're now, in a sense, kind of undoing the gains that they got. The, the, the number of those people is relatively small. There are clearly people who have health conditions that raise their premiums. There are very few people who have health conditions that raise their premiums so much that they're really priced out of the market. So one knee-jerk reaction might be, um, if we went back to where we were, would people be outraged over that. There would be some people who would be a little bit annoyed about losing their free health insurance, but they weren't that they weren't going to the doctor that much. So they probably wouldn't be that outraged. There would be some people who, in a sense, would be big losers from such a policy, those with pre-existing conditions. And then I would think probably the right thing to think about is, are there plans where, in a sense, we could let the private market try and solve some of these problems, some of the gaming issues that are arising with the Affordable Care Act, where, in general, what we want is insurance coverage that you can keep when you get sick, that kind of thing. But that sort of incurs responsibility from both sides. The way I would liken it to is with life insurance coverage. If you or I purchase life insurance coverage, if you purchase it at your somewhat younger age than me, then you will pay lower premium. Um, if you purchased it for a 30-year thirty-year term policy versus a 10-year term policy, the odds of you dying in the next 10 years, by definition, is much lower than in the next 30 years. You'd pay less. And of course, given your responsibilities, then basically the next 10 years, it's a pretty smart idea to, to purchase that kind of thing. At my older age, even at a uh, 10-year policy is going to be somewhat more expensive. Depending on each of our lifestyles, life insurance actually will raise your premiums quite a bit. If we were smokers or if we were obese or had chronic conditions or something like that, you'd pay a lot more for life insurance. What life insurance does is price based on risk. And basically, we don't see the outrage there that we seem to see with health insurance. And so I wonder out loud, should we not let the market price more based on risk than we typically do with health insurance? We don't hear calls for reforming the life insurance market. It seems to work okay. Um, and basically, I wonder if some of that could at least be transported to health insurance. There are real differences between the two kinds of products that I think one would need to acknowledge. But the main difference I see is life insurance looks at your health and prices based on it. Let's say Congress decides to, in your words, rip off the Band-Aid, repeal, no replace. Uh, how quickly can insurance companies re-enter markets that they have previously abandoned because they thought it was a bad deal 
based upon the risk pool and based upon the uh, people that they would be compelled to cover. So most insurance companies, I think, have stayed in the market, right? So we we get headlines from Aetna or United Health leaving the market, I think. But in all markets, there appear to be at least some insurers, even under this highly community-rated, highly regulated sort of uh, uh, um, government arrangement. So my sense is, is that if there are profitable opportunities out there, people will take them. Uh, one of the things that I think there's probably real clamoring for, and this is sort of the issue with ripping off the Band-Aid, if you will, is that there are a modest number of people who actually do have pre-existing conditions where, in a sense, they'd be priced out of the market. And that's sort of the moral struggle that people seem to go with uh, in terms of trying to think about overhauling the system. The natural question is, must we overhaul the entire system in order to address that problem? Could we deal with it via high-risk pools and very explicit redistribution? Basically say, as a society, we've decided that if you have certain conditions and are kind of locked out of the market, that you would basically kind of fall into this kind of risk pool. Um, so my gut sense is that it might be possible to repeal and that basically we'd be where we were perhaps in 2010. And basically uh, that in turn would mean more uninsured people. It raises a question that economists, though very few other people will ask, which is, is being uninsured really a bad thing? For example, not everyone who's listening to this podcast has a high-definition television. Not everyone who's listening to this podcast has a baccalaureate degree. You or I might think that HDTVs are a great thing or that getting a college degree is a great thing, but why should we impose our preferences on everyone? If people are making a choice to risk being uninsured and the consequences of that, and then perhaps using the money for something else, why is it your responsibility or my responsibility to say something different? Let's look at other insurance markets. Do we think that 100% of families have life insurance in case the breadwinner dies? Do we think that when we pejoratively call young adults young and indestructible who basically are choosing not to purchase health insurance, that, that the older adults who are calling them that are all purchasing, for example, long-term care insurance against the idea that they're not going to enter a nursing home when they're 80 years old, that sort of thing. We don't hear calls for universal coverage for other forms of insurance. The only one where we really mandate insurance coverage is for car insurance, and why do we do that? It's because if you hit me with your car and then run off, basically, uh, or if you hit my car and cause damage, um, there's no way of guaranteeing that you'd be able to pay for that sort of damage. So basically, uh, there might be other solutions, but we tend to mandate car insurance coverage because you're creating a negative externality onto me. Right, whereas insurance for that covers something that where the benefits overwhelmingly accrue to us as individuals, the insured uh, is something that maybe you don't necessarily want to mandate. So basically, think about either health or property insurance or life insurance, right? As very distinct from car insurance where Almost by definition, accidents happen when there's a second party involved, right? That's almost always the case. With health insurance, that's not the case. With life insurance, the sort of people who would be harmed by that would be your family. But basically, you care about your family, so you make active decisions to 
um, actually insure, so there's no externality involved. And then with property insurance, it's your own house. So basically, uh, you would make the decision to insure or not. And if you get burned by your house burning down, literally, then uh, you'd be the big loser in that example. None of those have nearly the same sort of externality that, say, car insurance has. Aaron Yelowitz is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate this podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.